Hello and welcome to A Private View. I'm Maeve Doyle. This week, New York-based artist Sarah Morris talks about her work, her influences, her background, and shares some brilliant anecdotes on adventures, life, art. Uh, Sarah was in town for her White Cube show, Means of Escape. So this was recorded in November 2021. As promised, I'm here with Sarah Morris. She's in the studio ahead of her show at White Cube called Means of Escape. I want to know more about that title. And uh, when Sarah walks in, I sometimes wonder and have to ask myself, is the real purpose of art to start a conversation? Hello, Sarah. Thank you for coming today. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for having me. I don't know where to begin with your career, but I know if I begin right now and work backwards, we'll go. We'll move on to something. I woke up this morning and turned on Sakura. And it made me ask myself, why do we need a script or narratives when you're looking at a film that can tell a story so well with pictures? That stress and tension of having to listen to dialogue and look at pictures well, at the same time was taken away. And I realized I that when it. I make films or when I experience cities or just experience life, what I'm doing is I'm seeing many fragmented narratives narratives which we never know the end of. So this idea of seeing all of these people, places, things that are constantly going on around us and not knowing what it is that they really are is what I'm interested in. It's, it's my meaning ascribed to what I'm seeing. And I think everybody experiences the world like that. Actually, I believe like J.G. Ballard, you, there is no need for fiction. It's all right here. You have an interesting relationship with control. Do I? I think so. From what I've researched about you, I think, and also I'm your completely practice, out of control. That's what I mean. <laughs> it's almost a surrendering control is the mm -hmm. only real way to engage with your life. And that control is kind of a myth. There's only one joke I know, and I bore people with it. How do you make God laugh? Tell him your plans. And I sort of think that you have that courage and braveness when you start making your work. And for anyone who's just jumping in now, we are starting at the end and I'll work backwards and tell everyone where you're from and how this happened. And well, about the, the control thing, let's start from the fact that um, uh, I definitely don't have any control, but I have set up a system, okay? And the system moves with or without me, meaning the cities, the places, the things, the people the politicians, the actors, whoever they are in the films, this is all going on with or without me. And so when I shot my first film, Midtown, which was done in 1998, in a single day, I hired a news crew. And I created, I didn't have a script, but I did have coordinates. And the coordinates were like Chase Bank, Seagram's Building, Penn Station, and so on and so forth. And... <clears throat> That really came out of the fact that my studio was in Times Square. I had a studio which was about 250 a month because the whole block was going to be um, relegated to Disney, which Giuliani. is which is which Giuliani. is actually Giuliani sold yeah. Times Square. This is this is a, a true I story, the and I believe it's a New Yorker article. And if mm. it isn't a New Yorker article, it should be a 20-page New Yorker article. Um, but Giuliani made a deal that he gave the Disney Corporation, the New Amsterdam Theater, for free for 100 years. So anyway, my studio is there. 
I definitely felt like I was in the movie Sweet Smell of Success. And that's sort of how it started. You didn't study art. You studied something completely different. That's right. Yeah. I used to be a little bit embarrassed about that because all my friends went to art school. They went to Yale or they went to Columbia or they went to Goldsmiths. Um, and probably me and Karsten Haller are the only two artists in the art world right now who, who didn't go to art school. Um, I studied political philosophy, and I studied semiotics. Um, which is kind of art school. Which is kind of art it school. It should have been. I mean, Todd, they, Haynes, was, Todd Haynes was in my department, but like oh, wow. before me. And so basically everybody wanted to be famous. Everybody wanted to make films. I wasn't making films when I was in school because I didn't really have any money, but I was in other people's films. And, that's sort of, and, and actually one of the films was a manifesto of me eating cake and telling him, who was a student at RISD at the time, uh, a guy named Stephen Overman, um, what I planned to do. Let's go back to the beginning. You were born in Seven Oaks, Kent? That's right. Nurse, mother, architect, yeah, my mo father? Uh, no, no, research no, no, scientist. no, no, no. My, my dad's a research scientist. My parents are both in medicine. So wow. I grew up with the word hospital being used a lot. And a lot of sort of medical... Um, yeah, just a lot of medical discussions. Definitely the global pandemic we're in today has been discussed at, at my parents' dinner table for probably like at least a couple of decades. I, I've been, they've been talking about this. So, about it, it eventua the yeah, eventuality yeah, of it. Yeah, well, I mean, there's been SARS and there's been other sort of plagues. but yeah, um, Mad cows. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I remember walking. I remember flying. I used to live in London. So I remember once going back to the States and having to walk through a sort of trod of sort of sanitizing liquid in my sneakers. I remember. They, do you remember that? Yeah. And I said, but I'm a vegetarian. They're like, it doesn't matter. I thought that. Also, I, thought I have I a rare a... blood type and yeah. I used to donate blood for kicks can't and, do it um, and I couldn't do it because I had been hanging out in London too Me long. Me too. No one else has that story. I couldn't give blood anymore. I was like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. This, this is where it gets interesting. So your parents are in the medical profession, but your grandparents are painters. Your grandmothers, both of your grandmothers are painters. Um, on my mother's side, the, all the women were artists, but obviously didn't make a living off of it but yeah. they but they were artists that was one of our and, first and, conversations and my great grandmother wanted to marry an artist that was her yeah did she um she ended up marrying somebody who actually made sculpture and had a um, foundry outside of boston of course i never knew her um but my mother speaks about her a lot your show on thursday is your seventh or sixth show with White Well, Cube? they tell me the ninth show, but wow. I, I don't know if I believe that. But yeah, I mean, my first show in London was in 1996, I believe in February. It was called One False Move, and that was work that I did in that Times Square studio. And I was arriving in London. Everything was happening here. Um, I actually ironically thought I was arriving too late, but actually I was arriving exactly at the right time. Right time, I mean, why? Right time, because it was so much better than New York. And, and the reason why it was better than New York, ironically, is because New York was much more, it is much more hierarchical than London. 
London, you know, fashion, music, art was all completely mixed, intermixed, partying every night with everybody. It was sort of like everybody was on the bus. There was no, there was no, there seemed to be no hierarchy and nobody had any respect for hierarchy. And that was really refreshing as an artist, as a young artist. And it was also refreshing to understand I could make work wherever I wanted. It didn't have to be New York. It didn't have to be Times Square. Because you do become a slave to New York. What year was it that you arrived at? Did you say 86? 86? No, not, no. I arrived in 96. 96, okay. No, no, but I went to school in Cambridge in like 87. And studied? SPS, social political political sciences. Okay, so now everything about the content of your work is starting to make sense. If does you, it? Yeah, <laughs> it, it sort of does, because for a while I was mulling around on Kawara. This, the word that you use... Uh, I met on Kawara. Did he's, you? He, yeah, he's fantastic. I love his work. I can I love numbers. That. I love dates. I love newspapers. I love the whole idea of like how much can fit into a single day. I mean, in, in a way, the film's you could say on Kawara inspired the films. Yeah, well, I would say they are. I mean, you're using the, the word coordinates as well, which that's I true. find really interesting. I'm like, what is this? Milita- and the paintings are coordinates too. Yes. Like that's how they're all mapped out. Actually, there's a, a ridiculous amount of math in the work. Um, I don't always do it myself, The you know, this math thing. Um, but we map out, you know, the paintings are literally diagrams and then they get the coordinates get mapped out on the canvas and then it's painted so this idea of coordinates and where they bring you to and how they affect you psychologically emotionally all of that is something that i think about a lot and this is why people always ask you where your life and your artwork separates and i'm guessing it just doesn't i don't think there's any separation between anything, really. I mean, it's all just one. I mean, well, obviously... Disease can make you see... COVID making us see that we're all just one, didn't it? Absolutely. Everything's connected. Everything's yeah. interconnected. There really are no sort of boundaries, are there? I don't really think there are. I don't either. I don't People like don't to res- like it when we speak like this. No, because you're we're supposed to muzzled. respect boundaries. <laughs> That's the PC thing yeah. right now, right? You respect boundaries. I don't respect boundaries. I definitely don't respect boundaries when it comes to a camera. One of the first things I learned on Midtown um, when I hired that news crew for a single day to shoot all these coordinates with me. Midtown was your first film. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And um, I had to beg for the money for that film, which cost $3,000. And um, that's a funny story in and of itself. But um, anyway, when I shot that film, the news crew informed me that there's a little brass plaque inserted into every sidewalk in New York, which shows that that where public space ends and where a private corporation begins. Now, of course, you know, nobody pays attention to that. And certainly the camera doesn't respect that. And certainly my camera doesn't respect that. How did that work out? Um, Well, I mean, that that film taught me so much. And uh, it almost set like a you know, as I said, it set like um, like a manifesto or a system. It set something into motion about how I could occupy myself, because the paintings and the films exist in the same brain, obviously but exist in the same space, 
very different realities, very different aesthetics. temporal realities, very different aesthetics. But um, the films are very fast, very collaborative, very improvisational, bring me to meet many new people who I want to meet, um, places I want to go. They're literally ex- an excuse, sort of like the way Andy Warhol used to say Interview Magazine was an excuse to meet people. My films are an excuse to go places and create situations that I want to place myself in. And then the paintings are very slow, very monotonous, um, extremely systemic, and they're sort of splintering, I say, like spider plants. They create the next one. So there's, it, one painting is never finished. It's always sort of like moving into the next painting, and it's sort of a chain. But the paintings are very slow. The films are very fast. And there's always a lot of paintings always going on, and there's always films going on in my brain, at least at the moment. And um, there's films in pre-production or post-production. I'm supposed to be shooting a film right now in Hong Kong, and um, I already started shooting that, but I don't know when that will continue. So they say of you that your films both seduce and seduce and alienate the viewer. Um, you did. I think the paintings do that too. A lot of people like you know really don't like my paintings, or they feel repulsed by them, or they're they feel like a larger reality that is somehow we're just part of a larger system, right? So people don't like to think that. People like to think that they're individuals. I right? heard someone say, someone who picked owns the piece, Johnny. He said to me, but but I don't know where she's going to go next. And I could you see know, him. He's from Hong Kong, and I could see him going. I don't know where she's going to go next. And I thought, that's actually why you're good, because people don't know what you're going to do next. Well, Part of why it is. Johnny comes from, uh, I mean, obviously a lot of places. It's American slang. But um, I have a nickname, which is Johnny Two Times, that Anton Cairn uh, nicknamed me in the 90s, which is I always say things twice. I always tell stories at least twice. Because the point is, is like, otherwise you just, people... I mean, it's a natural reflex for me. I can't really explain it. But, you know, it's from, it's from Goodfellas. Ah. Uh, Robert Town. What was that film like to work on and Robert work with? Town and was how did ama- that come okay, about? Well, how did that come about? Because I went to, um, I was trying to convince Warren Beatty to be in my film, Los Angeles. Stop and- for one minute. <laughs> There's a thread that also goes through your story about convincing people. We'll touch on that later. Okay. Yeah. So, so I go up to Mulholland Drive with a friend who drives me, who um, was pretended he was my driver. His name is Richard. And um, we go to uh, Warren Beatty's house because he invited me to have uh, coffee or tea with him to explain it is what I was trying to do with Los Angeles. So we go into his library and I'm explaining to him something that doesn't have a script, doesn't have any hair and makeup, doesn't have lights. You know, he certainly doesn't know the director. He doesn't really know anything about art aside from like David Hockney and Warhol, right? You know, there's, and, and, and maybe Avedon. Um, and I explained to him the film and obviously he has no control. He's talking about control. And he said, that's what's so brilliant about your films is you take away control and he wow. said, not having speech in the film takes away control. He's like, it's the, ultimate, it's the ultimate power move. And then while we were having this discussion, he took a phone call from Robert Town, who wasn't, quote, in town while I was shooting. 
he was in South Africa shooting a film. And I listened to this whole conversation for about 20 minutes. And it involved some sort of, let's just say, uh, it involved it involves some type of blackmail, right? So I'm, I'm in Warren Beatty's library and I'm listening to this blackmail story and I'm trying to piece it all together. And um, after that phone call ended, I realized I have to meet Robert Town at some point because he wrote Chinatown. He is, he is the master. And he also wrote The Parallax View, which my studio is named after. And yeah, he's just an, an amazing person. So... After I did Los Angeles, which was like, I don't know, Truman Capote used to say Los Angeles was a severe insult to the brain, I realized I needed to do an epilogue. And my epilogue was a film about Robert Town. But before I did that, I did a painting at Lever House, which is on Park Avenue. And um, this was a, a public art fund project, and it was done with Tom Eccles. And he said, what do you want to do? And I, went, I said, oh, I want to do a painting on the ceiling, which is 20,000 square feet, cuts through um, 52nd to 53rd. It looks like a Jacques Tati set. Like, there should be a subway there. There isn't. There should be a restaurant there. There isn't. You should be able to cross through the block. You can't because it's all glass. So I did this painting there, and I called it Robert Town. Public Art Fund got really worried. Fake name, by the way, Robert Town. They got worried that I was titling it Robert Town and said I had to have a uh, dis you know some sort of um, release from him. So basically, that was my excuse to contact him. I had to call him to have oh. him sign off on the title of my painting. And I said, you know, I was I said what I was doing with the ceiling. I said I'm going to put a painting on the ceiling, I'm going to call it Robert Town. And he said, well, I'd rather be on the ceiling than the floor. And then I asked him if I could make a film about him because he is a prescription for Los Angeles. He's a prescription for how to work. He is the original script doctor. He takes reality, an existing script, tweaks it and makes it better. And that's what I'd like to think artists do. Why oh, they do. They do. Uh, really hot topic at the moment is the relevance of the word luxury and how it's being used in the art world. Uh, you did. I really hate that. Yeah. I sat with somebody who ran a luxury channel yesterday at a press breakfast and I said, I hate the word luxury and I hate the word brand. <laughs> Good. Good. Whoever, and, whoever started teaching this to kids should be shot. Well, and to dealers. But, but let me ask, this is what she said to me. I said, how are you doing with the word luxury? You run a luxury channel. She was a smart woman. And she said, we haven't found a better word, so we're stuck with it. Well, it probably comes from a tax structure, right? Because governments around the world tax art as a luxury good, as opposed to seeing culture oh. as an important, uh, critical element of an infrastructure of a society. I mean, and look at look at this pandemic. I mean, everybody has been watching films nonstop. I mean, it's and 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 probably desiring to see art, going to exhibitions. Absolutely. So, I mean, they're more they're busier than ever. Mm -hmm. But luxury is a is definitely a four letter word in my house, and brand, and brand. And yeah, brand. the idea of branding. Okay, so let's this let, let's start with ideas. Right. No, but, and, but I mean, the point is, is anybody can use artists in any way they want. You can be appropriated. And ultimately, you don't have power about necessarily you can try to have power in terms of who 
owns the Johnny painting or who owns right. this painting. But I mean, that's boring and I don't have time for that. But dealers do. And that's what they should be doing is, is, is thinking about where the work should be placed and who should be the caretaker of the work. Beautiful. Well, well said. I've heard dealers say, I need work that's commercial. I'm like, actually, it's your job to make it commercial. Did you but, see Marcel Duchamp? I mean, I don't know. I mean, everybody talks about the auctions and the mar art market, and, and it's really the most boring, boring subject. The only good side to it, and I'm going to say this. Really? Is there a yeah, good side? Yeah, there is. Because what happened Let's is more it. people started collecting art. And I believe that eventually it will be the art that keeps them in the art game. And I think, I think if we open up, if money is what opens up people to collecting art, the art ultimately won't let them down where maybe the money will. Well, you know, even in the 80s, I remember Baudrillard was writing, everything would become art. Everybody would want to become an artist. And obviously, Boyce was before that. But, you know, it's true. Everything has become art, unfortunately. So when you were doing your film called Strange Magic, it was about decoding the environment. Oh, yeah, that was that my is... famous film. That, I mean, that film really almost pushed me over the edge. That's it. That's that, like that subject. OK, because they asked the me, um, Suzanne Paget, who is the director of the museum in Paris, was in retirement. Arnaud hired her to direct the LVMH Museum, they commissioned me to make a film. They said, you can do whatever you want. I said, well, what I want is the keys to your factory. And she said, well, Sarah, I can do a lot, but I can't help you in that regard, but you can do it. Um, and what it meant is I had to go to, you know, to get into the Dior factory that makes, you know, the perfume, J'adore and all of Addict and all the rest of it. Um, there's a guy who controls Dior, uh, which is the powerhouse of that entire brand. Um, and they make 30 million bottles a year. And I ran into that guy in the lobby um, of a building and wrote him a letter about Marcel Duchamp and about Air de Paris. And uh, he was convinced and he let me into the factory. But what was interesting is... LVMH was, the museum anyway, not LVMH, the company, LVMH, the museum, they were very concerned about it because it was like turning the tables and showing, well, what is the capital of the museum? Where is this money coming from? And it's actually really fascinating. It's coming from alchemical processes, which are perfume, champagne, what we call luxury goods. But these things have been around for a long time, very long time. Going back and forth from cities and trying to ba break through the gatekeepers of the art world isn't easy. Uh, some people never actually accomplish that task. And I wonder, going back to New York, how did you break into the New York scene? All right. Well, when I was at university, um, I went to Brown. As I told you, I was in the semiotics department and the political philosophy department. I did a manifesto. I distributed that manifesto to everybody. What was it called? Defunct. It was one okay. time. It was like one shot deal. And um, that manifesto ended up in the hands of Hal Foster, who now runs the art history department at Princeton. Um, I asked Jeff Koons to do a project for that manifesto. Um, ah, did you know him at the time? No, I didn't. I didn't. Okay. I just asked him to do it. And he, he said yes. 
And he had just done The Banality Show, which I thought was excellent. And if you don't know The Banality Show, that's the one that had Michael Jackson and what was the chimp's name? Bubbles. Bubbles. Yeah. I mean, it's the one that just made him a household name. It was one of my favorites. Yeah. So I asked him to do a project for that. So it ended up with Hal Foster, Jeff Koons, and I ended up, which really pissed off my department, I ended up basically getting interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine when I was 21. And it was a, uh, it was an article called what the kids who really read are really reading. And so that's sort of how I moved to New York is I did that. And I was in the Whitney Museum Independent Study Program, which is a program for a year that the Whitney does. Um, and they 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 fund you and they give you a studio and they give you money. Fantastic. Different times. Yeah. Oh, whew. well, that's still going on. That program almost died, but it was saved. So the legend of you is that you worked with Jeff. Well, Coons I was in the Whitney before he so had studio the contradiction assistance. begined right as soon as I arrived in New York, because the Whitney program, if everybody knows, is like this sort of proto Marxist sort of very politically correct entourage. And then at the same time, I needed more money to make my work and to live. So I asked Jeff for a job. Um, and, and he wasn't hiring at the time. Well, he didn't even have a studio. I mean, he lived on McDougal Alley. He said yes. And um, he was actually making, starting to make the Made in Heaven work. So I worked with him. That was like my part-time job. So I would sort of bicycle between the Whitney program and McDougal Alley, which, by the way, smelled like piss. What did you do for him? Because um, I can't I imagine edit. how that worked out. What did I do for him? Well, I drank a lot of Heath of Ice beer with him. We used to go to the bar, and that was really fun. I helped him edit um, the Made in Heaven paintings. I helped title some of those paintings. We went through hundreds and hundreds of slides. Um, what else do I do for him? I taught Ticholina how to use an ATM machine. She was magnificent. I, I remember the Hayward show and they came in in identical outfits, but, but different colors. Saw, but I also saw like an idea go run its course too. Right. You know, I saw a lot of things that I shouldn't have seen. Right. And, and sometimes, you know, I think I read a quote from you saying all art is about production. And that's really why I'm talking about Jeff Koons. What did you learn? I think it was all art is about failure, probably. Well, that was really interesting. Production too. and failure. I like your relationship with failure. Yeah, you have a really kind well, of buoyant goes, it, attitude towards well, this failure. Goes back to my dad like. and and this sort of theory of the way science works, which is like you can't prove anything; you can only disprove things. Right? I mean, there is no such thing as as truth. Um, everything is unstable. And in terms of that, it's the same thing with looking at society. And it's, you're living in America saying things like that? I try. <laughs> Your dad as I well? Try. That's amazing. Um, but <laughs> Good, no, failure is an important uh, subject in, in the history of art. And it's overlooked for a number of reasons, but it is, it's probably the central thing that motivates me and makes me think if you look at the midtown paintings my earliest paintings um or some of the earlier paintings they're all names of major corporations most of those corporations have failed you know but the idea of taking over social space and making it your own which is sort of a form of like graffiti in my version of course. okay or monopoly right because monopoly is also fun 
taking over, taking over space, taking over real space and making it your own. It shows how unstable reality actually is. Everything can change in a moment's notice. And art has a function in relation to that change. And the function is? The function is to change it. Will you come back when you're here next? Absolutely. Good. I look forward to it. You've been listening to Maeve Doyle's Private View. I am an art critic and artistic director at Maddox Gallery. This podcast is brought to you courtesy of Maddox Gallery. The music is by Korshid Homi, and it's produced by Will Fitzpatrick at Soho Radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you.